Hi, hello. Hello, welcome. Hey, hi, what's going on? Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Matt. I'm once again your host. Uh, Tish is somewhere out in the bedroom, probably upside down, asleep. She's had a long day attacking the squeaky mouse. Thank you everybody for listening last week. If you did, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you remembered the very interesting Glico Morinaga case, the monster with 21 faces. That was pretty weird. I know it didn't have any closure, but this one does, so don't worry. It's another true crime episode, so buckle up. You know, I like the weird shit. Uh, this one, we're doing uh, the story of Daniel LaPlante, or LaPlante, according to the Google pronunciation guide, uh, sometimes known as the boy in the wall. If you know this story, you know the weird part. If not, well, buckle up, you're about to. It's pretty weird. So Danny's childhood began on May 16th, 1970. And that's about as good as it gets. There's not a whole lot widely available on much of his childhood, except for he lived with his mother, stepdad, two brothers, Stephen and Matthew. Not me, I promise. Not me. I wasn't born yet. It wasn't me. And if there was any more details available, I don't think I would want them anyway, as he was abused in pretty much every way you can possibly imagine. Sexually, physically, mentally, all horrible way to be, horrible way to, horrible upbringing. Go with that one. And on top of all that, he was also dyslexic, come to find out. A lot of his classmates ended up, they thought he was kind of creepy, weird kid. He always showed up really dirty and smelled bad. He wasn't really, not the most consistent person to take care of himself hygienically. Just imagine like, Imagine like a giant dirt clod with acne and just a stupid bowl cut like how Gohan had on Planet Namek. He was not a fun child to be around. So, bearing that in mind, the solution, let's take him to a psychiatrist. Maybe we can talk some of these things out and help him figure out how to be a little more uh, on the level, let's say. Diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder, so ADHD essentially. Pretty simple diagnosis, yeah? Um, no, not quite so much. Um, he was allegedly sexually assaulted by the psychiatrist as well for over a year, which caused Danny to chuck it in the fucket bucket and started breaking into houses shortly thereafter. Not really anything super bad yet. More just to kind of mess with people, moving things around, drinking their stuff, eating their food, and of course, stealing all the valuable stuff that he can find along the way, which is... Really just more of a consequence of collateral fuck-offery than anything else. And so, right now, here's kind of how I tried to rationalize his thoughts, maybe. But his parents don't really care, and they're abusive. And his psychiatrist, too. Both of which are authority figures in his mind. So, the two authority figures I looked up to, or was supposed to be able to, fucked me. So now fuck everybody, I'm doing whatever the fuck I want, because fuck them. I have nobody to answer to, and now I'm free, in my mind, to do anything and everything I ever wanted, regardless of the consequences, because Danny LaPlante doesn't answer to anybody anymore, because, see above, and it repeats and repeats. Maybe not quite dead on, but I can kind of, 
I can kind of get from A to B there if I look at it that way for some of the breaking and entering stuff, but not quite so much for what we're about to get into, which is really, really creepy. I should be doing this a couple months ahead of time in October, but eh, everyone's going to be doing that. I'll do something better for Halloween. So enter the Andrews family. Brian Andrews, recently widowed, lived in Pepperell with his two daughters, Annie and Jessica, who were both 15 and 8 years old. It doesn't say what kind, but his wife unfortunately passed of cancer just recently. And despite the age gap, the girls were actually quite close, even being seven years apart in age. Due to lack of various things, Dad wasn't home often because he had to work to help support the girls. But Annie, being right in the middle of a lot of hormonal teenage years, thinks about boys a lot. I don't know what teenage girls are really like, but for sure, me and... Every teenage boy in existence that you know, we only had one, we were only motivated by one of two things. Can I eat it or can I fuck it? That was it. If it, if it didn't fall into either of those two categories, did not really care about, did not give a shit about it. And unfortunately for Annie, Danny is really nearby in age, so he's also curious about girls. But instead of, you know, what a normal person would do, I don't know what that is because I didn't have much game to speak of when I was 15 or 16, but I know I definitely didn't and wouldn't ever think to do this next series of weird, creepy shit. So he started calling her house. Well, how did he get her number, though? He claims he got her number from a mutual friend at school. All right, I don't quite know if I believe you, but I'm listening. Lie. This was a lie. He broke in one day while the family was out doing family stuff, probably saw her in the family photo, thought she was cute, got the phone number off of something in the house, and then made up a lie to call her later on. She asked what he looked like, and he said, tall, blonde, athletic, handsome, basically like every teenage girl's fantasy crush. And I looked up the number one movie in 1986 when this was going on was Top Gun, so she's probably expecting like Val Kilmer. She has a little bit of reservations. She's very skeptical, but her interest has been piqued, so she agrees to a date with maybe Val Kilmer, but probably not. And definitely not, because it ends up being one of the weirdest dates ever. Old Danny Boy shows up to pick her up on date night, and oh boy, is Annie surprised to see not tall, not blonde, not athletic, handsome, or handsome boy but rather just a not-handsome, acne-covered, stinky grease stain of a creepy piece of shit, or not Val Kilmer. At some point during the date, it comes up that her mom passed away of cancer, and that really, really gets Danny's interest peaked, and he won't shut up about it, asking her all kinds of questions, how'd she die, and all the would-not-shut-up-about her mom passing away of cancer and that of course makes her very uncomfortable so when they get home she says don't ever contact me or my family ever 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 again not ever no never again not ever if it were only that simple but it did seem that simple for a couple of days until three or four days go by or so 
the girls are talk, sitting around talking about mom, laughing, sharing stories, going back into their minds. It's the good old days when the whole family was together. And they decide to, as a lot of teenage girls seem to do at some point, at least the ones I knew growing up did, break out the Ouija board and have a little seance in the basement. They had the whole thing set up too, including candles, which I don't know if you know this about Ouija boards, but they won't work without candles. It's something about the heat differentials and spirit energies and um, crystal resonances. And I don't know, I just made all that up. But, oh, and then the dad comes home unexpectedly, so they stop. They don't want him to think that they've gone crazy because they have a Ouija board in the basement with fully functional Ouija candles. Late that night, while the girls are lying in bed, they begin to hear a tapping on the walls. Almost as if they were haunted. Is mom back? <sighs> Maybe mom's back. Hmm. No, not quite. So you guys and girls out there, you all out there, you know you're smart. You know it's not mom. This only happened whenever they were alone or it was in the middle of the night when dad was asleep. Which made me think of the Don't Wake Daddy board game, which I was never good at. It was hard, man. And with all this tapping going on all around them, the constant, pretty difficult to get to sleep, so. And that coupled with all the rest of the poltergeisty vibes in the house during the day, random things moving around, disappearing, even sometimes things just briefly left alone for a few minutes. They'd set something down in the kitchen, walk into the other room, come back, and just, fuck, gone. Thing was gone. And this went on for quite a while. And then one night, there comes a tapping. Transition word, beneath them this time. So Annie straps up, gets a kitchen knife. Her and her sister go down to the basement. And then scrawled in blood on the wall says, I'm in your room, come and find me. Fuck no. So the girls bolt the shit out of there, run over to the neighbor's house until dad got home, who was still really confused about what's happening. Maybe I'm away too often for the girls to really process mom being gone, so maybe that's a thought he had, but it is definitely therapy time, because whatever the reason, definitely do some good to talk to a therapist. And um, by the way, not blood. Turns out it was ketchup, of course. Well, tomato blood, maybe. And then two weeks go by. All is quiet. No knocking. No ketchup notes. Until... This time coming from Annie's room. And Annie, you know, Annie, she stays strapped. So she grabs her knife again, and they run upstairs. And this time they've got a new ketchup note on the walls that says... I'm back, come find me. Nope, bolt the fuck out again, run to the neighbor's house, call dad, who again, still turbo skeptical, but very supportive, goes upstairs to investigatize this entire debacle and sees a completely different note than what the girls told him on the phone a moment ago. It said, marry me. Ew, gross. Cue Brian's brain 
and those words look real weird next to each other, going into overdrive to fill in all the missing puzzle pieces when a blur catches his attention out of the corner of his eye. And he turns around to see Daniel standing there. Or perhaps for the moment, let's say Danielle, because he's wearing a dress, which is, of course, Brian's deceased wife, his dead wife's dress, a wig, and what I can only assume is not Brian's makeup all over his face. And, if that wasn't weird enough, he's also holding a hatchet. Unclear exactly what happens next, but after some struggling, Brian loses consciousness. And upon awakening, the unfortunately real-life intruder was gone. The cops show up later on, probably called by the neighbors who overheard the screams of children and one terrified and confused adult. After searching the house for a little while, they look behind a chest of drawers in Annie's room and discover a tiny, tiny door leading to a marvelous snowy wonderland with a talking goat man. No. No, they didn't go to Narnia. Not at all. No, instead, the lying bitch in the wardrobe, having reverted back from Danielle, they find Daniel hiding in a crawlspace behind the wall. Why the hell didn't he leave, I wonder? I cannot figure that out this entire time. Why didn't he leave? He had a house. He had a home to go to. He just... Whatever. Uh, there's a lot of conflicting reports saying how long he was there, but some say maybe up to two months. But again, why? You have a home, dude. What, what are you doing in there? They found a bunch of garbage, like beer cans and other clothes and some stuff that belonged to him and some stuff that belonged to the family. And why did that other note say, I'm back? Like he, It implied that he had somewhere else to go, which we know he did, but did he actually leave or... Was he just staying in there the whole time, being super, super quiet, which would be way creepier? Ew, no, I hope, no, oh, God, no. All right, moving on. Of course, he is arrested, uh, charged with four counts of kidnapping, four counts of armed assault in a dwelling, breaking and entering, larceny for more than $100, and malicious destruction. And he spends the next 10 months in juvenile detention, right up until October 1987, when he's transferred to adult court, since he's now being tried as an adult, he can post bail, and he walks out the door, which we do not want. Almost immediately after being released from juvenile detention, old Danny boy's back into his usual ways of general fuck-offery and all that nonsense. And on October 14th, somebody broke into the home of Raymond Pindell at 38 Elm Street. Well, what did they take? A couple of 22s, their holsters, and a rather sizable wad of cash. Three weeks later, Danny's father found one of the guns in his laundry basket underneath what I can only assume is a mountain of jizz socks. Which, ew, gross. Two things you don't want to see together. Definitely, ever. He's, when he asked him about it, he said he got it a year ago from a friend in Westminster. November 16th, 1987, sometime between 11.30 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. All right, now I'm going to break here for just a moment and ask, what do you think I'm going to tell you? That's right, it's another break-in, this time at the Gustafson home, which we will be coming back to in just a moment. This is the home of the Gustafsons, Andrew and Priscilla, and their two children, William and Abigail. 
This afternoon, he breaks in while no one is home and steals two cordless phones, two cable TV boxes, a remote control, and a whole bunch of silver dollars from one of those cool silver dollar collection box things. He takes the phone and put and the eh. He takes the phone and the cable box and he puts it in his brother's toolbox to keep his parents from finding it. But his brother, having eyes, also saw all the silver dollars around. Then Danny asks his brother and a friend of his named Pulowski for some bullets because he wants to make a bigger bullet and sell it. I don't know a whole lot about the inner workings of guns and bullet chemistry, but I'm like 99% sure that mashing two twenty-two shells together doesn't make a bigger bullet, so I don't know what he's trying to do here, and who's going to buy that? Who would? Why? But I guess he has some kind of charisma because Pulowski agrees. And maybe he just wants to see what the hell he's talking about. And he gives him a handful of ammo and the rest to a co-worker for some reason. I don't know. Then on December 1st, 1987. Uh, heads up. This is the bad part. This is not exactly for the faint of heart. At around 5 p.m., Coming home to their recently decorated for Christmas house, Andrew Gustafson comes home to a very quiet house. A little too quiet. Goes upstairs, opens the bedroom door to find a horrific scene. His wife Priscilla, upstairs lying in bed, had been, bet had been badly beaten and sexually assaulted, with a pillow covering her face and two gunshot wounds to her head. Dead. He runs out and immediately calls the police. I'm not dealing with this. I can't take the chance of finding... What if I find the kids? I can't take it. So he waits for the police to show up, and they run in and search the house. And unfortunately, they do discover the children. William, age five, was found in the tub upstairs. Abigail, seven, found in the tub downstairs in the exact same way. Both had been drowned, but Abigail had blunt trauma to the head and compressions in the neck. Oh yeah, a uh, really important detail. Priscilla was also pregnant. They were expecting a third child to bless this home, but nope, Danny had other plans. What an asshole. The very next day, December 2nd, 1987, police interviewed Danny that afternoon at the Townsend Public Library because he's absolutely on the police's radar for... Literally anything happening in town, they're looking right at Danny. Uh, after interviewing him at the library, says he was. they asked him what he was doing the day before. He said he was just home watching TV. When asked what he was wearing that day, he said he was wearing gray sweatpants, a football shirt, and some Converse. And they leave and they all go about their day, but later on, the police decide, you know what, we've got a few more questions for Mr. LaPlante. And they go back to his house, but this time when they show up, Danny bails out and he fucking takes off running through Fuck the woods. Fuck this, I'm out of here. His brother Stephen and Michael Pulowski again, they both say that they saw him with about $100 in cash, but he doesn't really have a job, so they don't know how he got it. He ain't got no job. So he takes off through the woods and he escapes for the night, and then the next day, December 3rd, sometime in the afternoon, he decides to go robbing again. Yeah. He breaks into two homes in Pepperell, he steals a 32 revolver from one of the houses, and he failed to get into a third house. At some point, he kidnaps Pamela Makala 
and forces her at gunpoint to drive him to Fitchburg. She obliges, of course, because gun, and but at some point bails out and eventually flags down the cops so she can report what all this craziness just happened was. And thankfully, because of multiple eyewitnesses seeing this asshole, police are able to quickly track him down into a dumpster behind a lumberyard in Eyre, which immediately made me think of Death Clock whenever Pickles is talking about his dad and he says, You belong in a garbage can. So a lot of the rest of this in my head is going to be with a heavy, heavy Wisconsin accent, just because it's a lot more fun for me. And they find the Come thirty-two here. revolver Don't in his underwear, ass. but why does he get an underwear gun? And a, they find the bullet in his shoe. Yeah. He's arrested without incident and swiftly charged with the murders of Priscilla, Abigail, and William Gustafson. Well, unbeknownst to Danny, when the police had come back to his house the night before, they had a warrant to go look for everything. So while he was busy going out and being a nuisance to the neighborhood, the police looked for a whole bunch of evidence potentially linking him to the murders, and they found quite a bit. See, shortly after the um, brutality a moment ago, police were investigating outside of the home and discovered some shoe prints in the garden. After following these around, it was determined that whoever had done this had also stolen the family nameplate, which was discovered by Massachusetts State Trooper Sean Baxter while searching the woods between Danny's house and the Gustafson house. They only lived like a mile and a half apart. It was not very far at all. And they find in the woods, wrapped inside a blue and, wh blue and white flannel shirt, was the nameplate from the house and some wet work gloves, probably from the tub. And thanks to some tracking dogs present, they were able to successfully navigate the woods and tracked it to within about three feet of Danny's house. Good boys. The shoe prints in the flower bed matched some converse in his closet. They also found a 22 bullet casing. And one of the cordless phones that he had stolen from the house had his thumbprint on it. Department of Public Safety chemist Carolyn LeClaire found semen and sperm cells near one corner of the bed, part of a condom on the floor next to the bed. In the closet, they found a brown sock that had been used as a gag, had saliva on it, and they also found several ligatures, neckties, socks, stockings, and pantyhose. Some other things they found in the bedroom were a mostly full beer bottle taken from the fridge, and for some reason, several pages of a porn magazine were in the kitchen trash can. Lab analysis shows that whoever this was is a type A secretor, same as the semen on the bed next to Priscilla. Fiber samples taken from a shirt found in the woods were a match for Danny's clothes the day of the murder, on the socks in his bedroom, on the belt found alongside the murder weapon, which wasn't found until April 7th, what was in the glove box of a jeep on his property, and also matched three other places in the bedroom. Fast forward a little bit, a little bit later to October 1998, it is trial time. By this point, Danny is 18 years old, but it had been previously decided that he would be tried as an adult anyway. He was forced to go undergo a psychiatric evaluation, and he was determined fit to stand trial. And wouldn't you know it, Danny decides, I'm pleading not guilty to all three murders which is a just super unlikable quality in a person to not admit any kind of wrongdoing. 
And the judge, jury, all the witnesses, the audience, including Daniel's own lawyer, um, they agree they don't like him either. They think he's creepy and he gives off bad vibes. And they put the entire courtroom off the entire time. No one liked him. He was unremorseful. And he had this stupid, smiling, acne-pocked smirk the entire time. Just, mm, you can't see it, but making a stupid smirking face like, like I stole a cookie from a cookie jar and I got away with it. That's the face he's making. Just, mm, <laughs> I got the cookie. That went on for too long. But in the glowing light of all that damning evidence, as if the universe was smirking right back at him, the jury finds him guilty in only five hours of deliberation. And he is sentenced to three consecutive life sentences, which totals out to 45 years. He's currently being held in a maximum security penitentiary in Norfolk, Massachusetts. Over the next several years, there's, uh, of course, appeals. There's an objection to the warrant. He appeals on the grounds that the warrant misidentified his home as a single-family home and that, in fact, the structure was a two-family dwelling. And I left this in because this is fun. This is a judge giving him the business and in a legal way, basically telling him to eat shit and leave me alone, go away. I got other judge shit to do. Uh, LaPlante claimed that the warrant was too broad and making the search of the upper level of the house excessive. Well, the judge disagrees, as well as pretty much everybody else, and he mentions, he, I, or she, I'm not sure, it doesn't mention the judge's name or anything. The judge mentions the one mailbox with one number on it, one electric meter, and one central doorway. The town clerk also told the police, only one family lives there. This is a good quote from the judge. For all intents and purposes, the defendant's home appears to be a single-family residence. There is no indication from its outward appearance that it functions as anything but a single-family structure. The lack of any physical characteristics which would indicate multiple residency plus the information received from the town clerk as to single occupancy satisfies this court that the description of the property in the warrant adequately represents the nature of the structure as could be known to a reasonable observer. Nope, I don't buy it. Oh, he's not done, is he? And then the judge comes back and says, and another thing, even if sufficient indicators of multiple residency could be gleaned from the scant physical evidence available to the police, it is apparent that the defendant had sufficient access and control over the entire structure so as to warrant a finding of probable cause to search the entire building. Appeal denied. Tries to suppress some more evidence, saying it was not properly seized within the scope of the Plainview Doctrine, which if you don't know, the Plainview Doctrine, essentially anything in plain sight, not behind a closed door or drawer or obscured by anything. If the police enter a dwelling for a valid reason, like if they have a warrant, if they come in and they can see something in that room just by looking around and seeing it, if they have reason to believe that seeing that thing is probable cause, then they are allowed to seize that thing as evidence. And in this case, it was the cable box and remote control. So the police, upon viewing these items, had probable cause to believe that they were fruits of a previous break-in at the Gustafson home, which is normal people speak for, they were missing from the other house that was brutalized, now they're in this house, probably a connection there, let's take them as evidence. So keeping in mind the story that I just told you, 
not hard to imagine he's kind of a pain in the ass to deal with in prison. And they end up segregating him for safety reasons, but then after that, he sued them for not having access to the library anymore because he didn't have access after being segregated, and he ended up winning 450 bucks. He also threw a hissy fit whenever some guards confiscated porn that he had somehow gotten sent to him in prison, which you can't have in prison. He appeals again in 2017 for his sentences to be ran concurrently instead of consecutively, which would make him eligible for parole, but twas denied again. No, stay put until 2032 when you actually become eligible for, per eligible for parole. Ten more years. By the way, Andrew Gustafson remarried in 89 to a delightful woman named Carol and then began to work as a child advocate for the state. He lived a happy life with her until 2014 when he died of cancer at the ripe old age of 60. And that is all I got for Daniel LaPlante, Danny LaPlante, old Danny boy, the walking acne scar. I don't know why I'm on an acne thing. It, it brought it up this time and it was funny. So whatever. And fuck him. What an asshole. Why do you kill a pregnant woman and then drown her two kids? You're a dick. I hope you don't ever get out of prison. And if you do... I hope you don't live long after that if you don't die in prison before that. Anyway, that's all the story I got for today. Uh, follow me on Spotify. I'm on Spotify. Go over on Facebook. If you can find the High Story Facebook page, go over and give that a like and follow. Also on Podbean. And one last thing before you go. Just, however your day is going today, just keep this in mind. Somebody today, doesn't matter when you're listening to this, this is a timeless truth. Somebody today started the tea at some restaurant without putting the spigot thingy on first and then just walked away. So at least your day is not going like that today. So thank you again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. Stay kind. <music>